All right, it's good to be with you this evening uh, for our final week of uh, Bibliology, um, study of the doctrine of Scripture. It's our first step in our tour through systematic theology, and we've talked about why that's the case numerous times. Um, significant doctrine, it's the foundation on which we're going to build everything else in our, in our theology. Um, get us started, what did we talk about week one of Bibliology? Remember? The what of Scripture. The necessity. That's right. Necessity of Scripture. And we said Scripture is necessary. It's essential um, for all of life. It's essential for us to construct a biblical theology. um, Because for two reasons. We are depraved um, and we're finite. Apart from the Word of God, we can know very little about who God is, who man is, um, about many things. After that, we went to the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, and we um, tackled the authority of Scripture under two headings in two weeks. Um, So do you remember those? Why is the Scripture authoritative? There's two reasons. There's week one and week two. Remember? First reason is because it is what? It is inspired. That's right. It's authoritative because it is the word of the very... God of this universe, who is ultimate authority. Um, Why else is it authoritative? Because it is inerrant. That's right. Um, It reflects absolute truth. It is the standard by which we evaluate everything else. Um, It is truth. It is inerrant. So now, this week, we come to the the final question that that I want to tackle. There's a lot of other things we could have talked about. I felt this is a, a, an appropriate way to finish this, um, this topic of Scripture. Final question is, how do we know that the Bible is indeed the Word of God? So we've already seen that it claims this for itself, right? It's inspired. We've already seen that it claims truth and purity for itself. It's inerrant. But anybody can claim anything for themselves that they want, right? It doesn't make them automatically true. Um, So why should we embrace the Bible as the thing that it claims to be? The true word of the living God. How can we be sure? Um, On what does our faith here rest? How can you defend that the Bible is the word of God to unbelievers? How should you commend the scriptures to unbelievers um, as something they should trust as the word of God? And does the way we do this, does the way we try to answer this question really matter that much? Well, it's clearly a very important question for us to ask. Um, Our faith in the Bible is not a blind leap into the dark. It shouldn't be. God doesn't want it to be. Um, The Bible wants you to have certainty that it is the Word of God. But how? It's the question that the Westminster larger catechism gives to us, how doth it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? So this is the question we're going to seek to answer this evening. Before we do, um, we need to understand why this is such an important question and why it's important to give a proper answer to this question. 
Number one, it's important um, to give a proper answer in order to maintain the authority of the Bible in our defense of the Bible. So there are right ways and there are wrong ways of answering this question. There are ways that people use to defend the Bible which are appropriate. There's ways that people use to defend the Bible which are inappropriate. You see, what is at stake is the very authority of Scripture which we have been defending all along. The Bible is authoritative because it's the Word of God. It has the right to demand a hearing. It has the right to demand faith and obedience and submission to everything that it claims. But what about the Bible's own claim to be God's Word? By what standard is that to be measured? And the answer is that that must be measured by the Bible itself. If the Bible is our ultimate authority... It must be our ultimate authority to answer this question as well. As well, And the danger is that we would undermine the Bible's very authority by seeking to support it by some other authority apart from Scripture. So let me explain this a little bit, a little bit better here. In order to do so, we need to talk about the importance of presuppositions. Now, don't get scared by the big theological word. What is a presupposition? Um, it's pretty simple, actually. A presupposition is simply one's ultimate commitment. It's the thing upon which everything else you believe is supported. It's the authority which undergirds your whole worldview. It is the glasses which you wear through which you evaluate everything else. For us as Christians, our presupposition, our ultimate commitment, ought to be to the Bible as the Word of God. But the point we're making here is that if we're not careful, we can undermine the Bible's authority by making it rest on something that we think is more reliable. So Scripture is our ultimate authority for all knowledge, faith, and practice in all areas of life then it must be authoritative in our knowledge and belief about what the Bible is in itself. And people often, unintentionally and unassumingly, deny the authority of Scripture in the way they do apologetics, in the way they try to defend the Bible. They want to provide a basis for faith and knowledge apart from the Bible. So your heads might be spinning a little bit here, but let me put it very simply, okay? We do not, and we should not, first seek to prove the Scriptures by subjecting them to some external test, which man deems valid, before we seek to use the Scriptures and believe the Scriptures. The Scripture does not rest on... It does not possess authority by depending on something outside of itself. It possesses authority due to the fact that it's God's very word. It's authoritative and demands faith because it's God's word, not because man has deemed it to be authoritative. And that is key. Listen again to Westminster. 
the authority of Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. Now, you might be thinking here, Michael, that sounds a whole lot like circular reasoning. We believe the Scriptures claim to be our highest authority because the Scriptures are our highest authority. It's circular. We believe the Bible is the Word of God because it claims to be the Word of God. Circular reasoning. Let's expand that circle a little bit. Let's add a little data to it. We believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible claims to be God's Word in many places. And it demonstrates this by the reliability of its words, the consistency of the whole, um, the very character which points to a divine origin. And we could go on and on and on. But all we've done is expanded this circle a bit and included some more data. But ultimately, we're saying that the Bible's self-claims and the Bible's self-witness are our ultimate ground of certainty and its identity as God's Word. The Bible self-claims. And this is how all ultimate commitments work. All presuppositions work this way. This is not just a Christian thing. So, for example, a rationalist, a person who thinks he can construct a comprehensive worldview, figure out reality by the use of his own logic and his own reasoning and philosophy. He's going to defend that system of rationalism by giving you a reason why it is a reliable system. A person who tries to go by sense experience, um, the scientific method to try to evaluate reality and give a comprehensive worldview, they're going to defend that system of doing that by appealing to the reliability of sense experience and giving you proof after proof from scientific investigation and, and data. Um, all ultimate commitments are circular. They have to be. Because if they appeal to something else, then that other thing would be their ultimate authority. Do you understand? Does that make sense? And that is what we do with the Bible. If we claim the Bible is our ultimate commitment, but then we go on to defend the Bible by appealing to some other authority, like it aligns with philosophical discoveries, or it aligns with scientific definitions, or it aligns with the culture, whatever that other authority is, we reveal that that is our ultimate commitment and not the Scriptures. Um, so that is why this is such an important question to ask and how we go about answering this question is very, very important. Um, our confidence and defense of the Bible should be grounded in the Bible's own testimony. Our confidence and defense of the Bible should be grounded in the Bible's own testimony as our ultimate commitment. We shouldn't subject the Bible to a standard we have constructed on our own. Because in doing so, we will make that thing and not the Bible our ultimate 
authority. So let me show you a few things. What does that mean? That means the Bible determines what tests and reasonings are valid. The Bible determines which evidences are to be examined and which are appropriate. And the Bible, by itself, is able to authenticate itself as the Word of God. And if we've really embraced God's Word as it really is God's Word, then our faith will be grounded in the way God's Word validates itself for us. Not because it lines up with our expectations, or it lines up with some other standard, some other authority we have over, over here. Listen to John Frame here. He says, We do not believe God because we have subjected God to our tests and to the tests of others. Rather, God's word is the foundation of our thought. God's word is the ultimate criterion of truth and right. It is the judge of what reasoning is valid and sound. The ultimate test of a scholar is whether his work agrees with Scripture. And Scripture determines what evidences are to be believed. So that is all preparation. It's all sort of foundation to get us some categories in our minds for why this is significant. It's important how you go about answering this question. We don't want to undermine the Bible's authority by our attempts to prove it or demonstrate its truthfulness. Please, this is the next question. How does the Bible testify to its own truthfulness? Before we move on, um, I know we just went through very quickly um, a whirlwind tour of presuppositional apologetics. Okay, so questions. It will probably be answered as we go through this. Um, questions, any thoughts about that? Your minds are probably spinning. You might be in a fog. I still don't really get what he's talking about. Um, I think it will come clear as we work through this. Um, anything, though? Okay. How does the Bible testify to its own truthfulness? We just said that it, it must. All ultimate authorities demonstrate their validity by testifying to themselves, and that's what the Bible does. And it must. But how does it do this? The Bible is self-authenticating. The Bible, as it is God's Word, is capable in itself of demonstrating that it is indeed the very Word of God. That does not mean that it does not mesh with or align with the external world. Um, It does not mean that it cannot be shown to be reliable by the use of external evidence. It can, and it does. Um, If the Bible is really true, then we should expect it to align with historical research and scientific investigation. There's a caveat. We should expect it to when all the facts are known and when everything is evaluated through a biblical lens. Remember last week we gave the example of the Hittites, Historical investigation said, well, the Bible's an error. No one's discovered this group. Problem wasn't the Bible was an error. Not all the facts were known. A few decades later, oh, look at that. There's actually this group of people. Um, So when all the facts are known, the Bible, of course it's going to align with external evidence. Um, 
when things are interpreted correctly through a biblical worldview. In other words, not beginning with the assumption that there can't be any supernatural, there can't be any um, supernatural explanations for things. The Bible will align with the external world. But the self-authenticating nature of Scripture simply means that it is sufficient in itself to demonstrate its own truthfulness and identity as the Word of God. It's ultimately not dependent on anything outside of itself. There are certainly proofs and there are certainly evidences, and we're going to talk about those tonight. But even those proofs are ones authorized by the Bible. So the Bible is self-authenticating. Think about light. Light is self-authenticating. You go outside and you see light, you know it's light by the very nature of it being light. You don't need anyone to tell you about it. You don't need anyone to explain it to you. It authenticates itself by its very presence. Listen to how John Calvin explains this point. uses the same metaphor. He says, as to their question... How can we be assured that this, that's the Bible, has sprung from God unless we have recourse to the decree of the church? So here it is again. Back in in Calvin's day, um, it was the external authority of the Roman church. The, the, The church of Rome had to authorize the Bible. That was the ultimate criterion and the authority on which the Bible rested. It's no different today. We just have other competing authorities. Listen to how Calvin responds. How can we be assured? It is as if someone asked, whence will we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, bitter from sweet? Indeed, Scripture exhibits fully as clear evidence of its own truth as white and black things do of their color, or sweet or bitter things do of their taste. The Bible is self-authenticating. So what I want to help you do tonight is think clearly about why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We want to do it in a way that's consistent with the Bible's own claims, doesn't undermine the Bible's authority. Let me just say here, our faith in the Bible is not a leap into the dark. It doesn't want it to be. Um, In fact, faith in the Bible is the most reasonable thing you could do. There's abundant reason for embracing the Bible as God's Word. It's plain. It's evident that it is. If only you had eyes to see. And that's the key issue, which we will talk about. So what I'm going to do next is run through a variety of ways which the Bible identifies itself as the Word of God. And you could call these proofs. You could call them the Bible's witness to its own identity. Um... And then we're going to look at some external witnesses to the Bible's identity as the Word of God. To get us going, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This will be just our key text to springboard off of. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. <clears throat> Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so there it is, the apostles are preaching the gospel, and Paul says that 
That's the Word of God coming to these people. When you received or heard the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You welcomed it in. Embraced it. Not as the Word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God. Which is at work in you believers. Paul preached the Gospel. And he said that that apostolic word was the very word of God coming through a human mouth. When these Thessalonians heard it, they embraced it as it is the very word of God, not word of man. But how does that work? Well, that's what I want to, uh, to show you tonight. Look again at the answer that the Westminster Catechism gives um, to uh, that question. And then we'll pick it apart and uh, springboard off of this. The Scripture manifests themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So let's take each one of these briefly and um, quickly. How does the Bible authenticate itself to us? Number one, by their majesty and purity. There is a majesty to the Word of God. Psalm 119 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are wonderful. They not only record the wondrous acts that God has done, they explain the wondrous character of God. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, unlike anything man would devise. There's a majesty to the Word of God. A God-centeredness to the Word of God. There's a purity to the Word. I saw this last time. The words of the Lord are pure words. They're flawless in their character. So number one. Number two. The consent of all the parts. The Bible is a unified whole written by over 40 authors in its expanse of 1,500 years it teaches us about God, man, sin, redemption. It gives us a unified picture. Never contradicts at any point. Um, it's teaching on the sinfulness of man, the character of God, His plan of redemption. And all of these passages consistent with the larger presentation of the Bible as a whole. It's a single story of redemption from cover to cover. Luke 24, Jesus said, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Acts 10, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Acts 26, Paul said, say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said will come to pass. There is a consent of all the parts. Number three, by the scope of the whole, 
which is to give all glory to God. It's different from the writings of any human philosopher, psychologist, um, religion. The Bible records deep flaws in its greatest heroes. Um, It's not after exalting man. The goal is never the glory of man, but the display of the glory of God. Um, We'll be here in just a few weeks in Romans. Paul says, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. No natural man talks like that. Psalm 96, 4-5, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The God of Scripture is unique to all other human gods. His holiness, His purity, His righteousness, His judgment even for His covenant people, His plan of redemption which is dependent totally on Himself. It's unique. It's all for His glory. It's another way the Scripture testifies to its own identity. Number four, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners and to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. There's a piercing clarity, a razor-sharp razor sharpness to the Word of God which slices the heart, gets to the core of our being. Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a sharpness to God's Word. It's able to transform lives Change people from being a slave to sin into a child of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. For they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The ability of Scripture to transform lives as nothing else can do. And we could add to this a number of other things. I'll hit really quickly. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, um, different from any other religion, man-made system in the world, grace alone through faith alone. The fulfillment of prophecies, the prediction, the fall of Jerusalem, which is made 150 years before it took place. The prophecy of Cyrus by name, which took place. Israel's captivity for 70 years, which took place. Um, Isaiah 53, I put it on your outline. We're not going to go through it, but every verse of Isaiah 53 fulfilled in the New Testament. The fulfillment of prophecy testifies to the Scripture's identity. The credibility of its writers. Not just anybody wrote the Bible. It was prophets who were authorized, who were recognized, The prophecies came true. Um, They had signs which they performed, authenticated themselves, same with the apostles. And finally, the testimony of of Jesus. Um, Remember that? We talked about inspiration. Jesus affirmed the identity of the Old Testament as the Word of God. So if you want to affirm Jesus as something, a prophet, a teacher, but you reject the Scriptures, you must reject Jesus. You cannot... Keep both of them. 
And that's just a quick sampling of all the ways the Bible testifies to its identity as God's Word. But there's also ways in which external evidence corroborates the Bible's claims. External evidence is helpful. It's useful. We shouldn't neglect it. But just a reminder that evidence is in submission to Scripture. It's not in independence from Scripture. But if the Bible is true, then we should expect to see ways in which what it claims is playing out in our real world. Of course it does. So let me give you a couple. In the way it's been vindicated by historical, archaeological, and scientific research, its historical and geographical claims have been repeatedly found reliable. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. But again, don't forget those caveats. When all the data is known, and when it's being evaluated according to biblical lenses, it will always line up with the real world. Number two, it accords with reality in a way that nothing else does. It stands apart from other books on religion, other books on philosophy, it presents to us a consistent, comprehensive worldview for all of life. And it doesn't fail. Um, at some point, all systems of thought, all systems of belief, human man-made philosophy, they'll fail. They, they won't be able to bear up under the weight of the real world. Um, so you just do a survey of human Western philosophy. person constructs a way to view reality, people try it, it fails. Someone comes and replaces it with another. Construct it, live it, it fails. Over and over. Philosophy's been asking the same questions over and over and over again, and it fails. It cannot bear up under the weight of the real world, but the Bible can. It presents you with a consistent view of reality. Listen to Nathan Busnitz here. This little book I will recommend to you called Reasons We Believe by Nathan Busnitz, forwarded by John MacArthur. It's very helpful going through why we believe the Bible, why we believe God. And he helps to show how proofs, how evidences are important. He'll give you a number of those like we're doing, but he also puts it in a biblical framework for how you should defend it. So it's a really helpful little book, Reasons You Believe. You won't find it in the library because I stole it, So, um, but maybe... Mom back there, Debbie, can, can get it for you. But this is a helpful little book. Um, let me read you what, what Nate Boosnett said. The Bible presents the only worldview truly consistent with reality. And that is evidence of its divine authorship. The Bible explains the existence and order of the universe, which is created by God, the personhood and dignity of men and women. We're the image of God the origins of reason and knowledge which come from the mind of God, the reality of evil and pain which was introduced in the sin by Adam to the world by Adam and Eve, mankind's innate awareness of morality which arises from conscience, and the reason human beings cannot find ultimate satisfaction in the things of this life since they were created to find ultimate satisfaction only in God. The Bible presents us with a consistent worldview. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what the Bible is. It gives us a consistent view 
of reality. In these and many other ways, the Bible testifies to its own identity as the Word of God. Any questions, comments, before I go on? Is it clear? You following? Okay. But obviously, these proofs are not enough, right? There are some limitations to these evidences. In fact, most people do not receive the Bible for what it is and what it claims to be. And this is the important homardiological factor. So there's another one of those big theological words. Very simple. Homardiology is the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of total depravity. The problem is not that there's any lack of certainty in God's witness. The problem is not in God's word. The problem is in mankind to whom God's word comes. And this is so important that we get this point. If we forget this, the homardiological factor, the sinfulness of man, then we will try to coerce people to faith by just giving them proof after proof after proof when what man needs is not more evidence. It's not more information that he's lacking. So if we miss the homardiological factor, the sinfulness of man, we will think that all we have to do is just keep piling up the proofs. It's not what he needs. Or, even worse, we'll be tempted to go outside of the Bible to find ways to validate the Bible which fit into fallen mankind's value system. It fits into fallen mankind's standards. We put the Bible up under that in order to win people to the Bible. Um, So we have to get this point clearly in our minds. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm sorry, go to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians 2, look at verse 6. Paul says, among the mature, talking about believers, we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. He's talking about the gospel, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says that the gospel he proclaims is indeed the very wisdom of God. It's not folly, it's wisdom, it's power. God ordained it from before all ages. It's full of glory. Go back to chapter 1, verse 18. Paul calls the gospel the word of the cross. He calls it the power of God. The message of the gospel is the pinnacle display of the manifold wisdom of God. A way that sinners can be reconciled with themselves through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross so that all the glory goes to God. It's an amazing message. But how does fallen humanity respond to this? Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Go down to verse 22. Jews demand signs. 
Greeks seek wisdom. You see that autonomous standard? It has to align with our demand for signs. It has to align with our demand for wisdom. Then we will believe it. Right? Go over to chapter 2, verse 14. The homardiological factor here, it's not that the Bible is not evidently the Word of God. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. The natural person, the unbeliever who does not have the Spirit, he does not accept, receive the things of the Spirit of God, the Gospel. For they are folly to him, and he is not able. Hear the inability? He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's the homardiological factor. He's unable, the total inability of fallen man to receive the gospel. It contradicts everything in his nature. Go over to chapter Second uh, Corinthians, chapter four. Second Corinthians four. Another example of this. Second Corinthians four. Look at verse three. Same context, Paul is preaching the gospel. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's the devil he's talking about, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Paul is preaching The glory of the gospel is on display in his preaching, but for most who hear it, they do not see glory in it. Why? Paul tells us because they're blind. They're blind because of their human depravity, and they're blind because of satanic blindness on them. They don't see it. What are they blind to? Look at verse 4. He says, the light of the gospel. What is that? The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the gospel glory is radiating out out from this message. Who Christ is, what He's accomplished, who God is. The problem is not there's no glory in the gospel. The problem is it's shining on people who are blind. When they hear it, they don't perceive glory, but boredom. It's not wisdom, but folly. It's not power, but it's weakness. Nobody rightly assesses the evidence. Um, So key to get. Um, Flip with me over to John. I I have it in the back of your outline, um, a case study in John. We're not going to go through it, but let me show you a couple texts. I've been preaching through John. Go to John 8. Through the first half of John, Jesus gives witness after witness, evidence after evidence that He is indeed Messiah. His consistency with the Old Testament his alignment with everything that Moses said, his perfect desires for the Father, his signs, everything testifies the Messiah. And they misunderstand and misunderstand. And look at verse 43, what he says, chapter 8, verse 43. He says, why do you not understand what I say? What's the answer? What's underneath all their misunderstanding? It's not because Christ hasn't been clear. It's not because Christ isn't who he said he is. Look what he says. It's because... Literally, you are not able to hear my word. Why can't they hear it? Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. You have the DNA 
of the devil. What does that mean? He says, your will is to your father's will. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he's a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell the truth, verse 45, you do not believe me. You see that? Why didn't they believe him? It's primarily because he told the truth that they didn't believe him. Because their DNA in nature loves lies. That's the homardiological factor. Evidence, glory is radiating out of the Bible and out of the gospel. It's shining on people who have the DNA of the devil. And they don't, and they cannot receive it. So once we get into clarity, the depravity of man, his hostility to the gospel and to the truth, his inability to respond, the question is no longer, why would anybody reject the gospel or the Bible? Right? The question is rather, why would anyone receive it? Right? Why would anybody receive this? If that is who we are, by nature. And that leads us to the next point. Our need for the witness of the Holy Spirit. Our need for the witness of the Holy Spirit. Go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This work of the Spirit is spoken of in a variety of ways. Look at how Paul speaks of it here. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. His gospel is self-authenticating. It's beaming glory. It's doing it to people who are blind. They don't see it. What must happen? Look at verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The creation. What has He done? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See how similar that sounds to verse 4? Verse 4 said, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The gospel radiates the glory of God through the face of Christ. And John here, Paul here says, that God has shown into our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ through the gospel. God has to do something. He has to say, let there be light. He has to remove the blinders from our eyes. And He does that through the Holy Spirit. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, where we just were. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.22 Jews demand signs. Paul, if we're going to believe your gospel, it must line up to our signs. They demanded that of Jesus all the time. Greeks seek wisdom. Paul, to embrace your gospel, it needs to align with Aristotle and Socrates and our philosophy. Paul doesn't give them any of that. Look what he does. Verse 23, we preach Christ. That's all he does. Preach the gospel. Preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But look at this, verse 24. Some Jews, it's not. 
a stumbling block, it's power. And some Gentiles, it's not folly, it's wisdom, but why? Verse 24, to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Calling for Paul has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. Open your eyes. Everyone God calls responds by faith. And everyone who responds by faith does so because God called them. He enabled faith. He opened eyes to see, clearly see and perceive. The Bible is the very Word of God. The Gospel is the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that is what Paul gives them. He doesn't give in to their demands. Verse 23, he just preaches Christ. And he lets the Spirit, he lets the Spirit work. See why it's so important that we get the self-authenticating nature of the gospel of the Bible down? It'll keep us from compromising. It'll keep us from distorting the gospel altogether. Man wants it to align with their wisdom, with their standards. If we're not careful, we'll be tempted to adjust the message to fit what is deemed acceptable so that people will believe the Bible and believe the gospel. We'll accept the presuppositions that science is able to discover ultimate realities. That everything needs to be verified by science. And if science says that homosexuality is genetic, then in order to save the Bible, we just need to deny what the Bible teaches and make it fit into what is deemed authoritative. And Paul says that that method destroys the gospel. Rely on it. It's self-authenticating. You don't need to fit it in to what the world says is authoritative. But how will people believe? If we don't compromise, what do we do? Verse 23, we preach Christ. We speak the truth. And we let him him work. This is what what theologians call the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Westminster Catechism again. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the truth, uh, by and with the Scripture, and the heart of man, is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very Word of God. This doesn't mean that the Spirit adds evidences um, to the Bible. Uh, It doesn't mean that we point to this inner witness of the Holy Spirit as a reason for our faith. That's not what it's talking about. It just means that it is the fundamental cause. It is what's underlying all faith. Um, it's the removal of those blinders so that we see and assess the evidence correctly. We recognize it for what it really is. Um, listen to John Calvin again on this point. He says, For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what they had had been divinely commanded. In other words, the Scriptures are self-authenticating. They display glory in themselves. Yet we're blind to it. 
And that is the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to it. J.I. Packer explains this as well. I, I love this quote here. He's talking about the Reformers. He said, rejecting both the Roman contention that the Scripture is to be received as authoritative on the church's authority, so that external authority. The church says it's authoritative. The culture says it's authoritative. It has to meet its standards. It's what the Reformers were up against. And the idea that Scripture could be proved divinely authoritative by rational argumentation alone. We can reason our way to this without the aid of the Bible. Calvin affirms Scripture to be self-authenticating through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. What is this inner witness? It's not a special quality of experience, nor a private revelation, nor an existential decision, but a work of enlightenment, whereby through the medium of the verbal testimony, the, the Bible, the Gospel, the blind eyes of the Spirit are open, and divine realities are come to be recognized and embraced for what they are. 1 Thessalonians 2. When you received the Word of God that you heard from us, you embraced it, welcomed it. This really is the Word of God, not the Word of man. So the Bible is authoritative, and that means it's self-authenticating. We don't prove the Bible by some other standard in order to use the Bible first. If you do that, you're going to undermine the authority of the Bible. Rest in it. It has full evidence in itself and in the way it corresponds with reality around us, that it is indeed the Word of God. We're blind to it, naturally. And we need the work of the Spirit um, to open our eyes. So I have some implications on the back. Before I do that, um, we have covered a ton of territory. Um, I know you probably have questions, um, and I can't promise an answer, uh, but if you um, have it, I, I can try. Um, any thoughts, questions, comments? You confused? Steve. Yeah. Now, that, that, that makes us a little squeamish. Yeah. So, 
There certainly is a, a, a mystery to it. Is. Our job as believers is proclaim the word. Amen. He does the converting. We just proclaim. We're not responsible. God's not going mm-hmm. you know, call us on the carpet someday and say, uh, you weren't very effective in the way you presented the gospel to this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He didn't get saved. Yep. He'll say, well, it's because of what you did, they did. Amen. It's like, no, that's his that's right. It's that, it's that wall of worship we've right. talked about over and over again. This is what the Scripture says. We go as far as the Scripture has told us, right? right. But how does that happen? How does the Spirit open eyes? How do we... Um, it's a mystery, and we, we embrace. This is what the Bible says. I'm going to believe it, and I'm going to bow to it and trust it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's amazing. And the Bible, it's not a blind leap in the dark. It's not something we can only have 90% certainty about. Through the work of the Spirit, we, we know it is. We open, we, we hear. This is the words of my Creator. This is what Jesus said in John 10. My sheep hear my voice. We hear it. We know it's the word of Him. And it's not some leap in the dark. It's not some irrational thing. Um, we know it for all these reasons and, and many, many more um, by His grace and His grace alone. Um, good. Anything else? Questions, comments? or implications you want to draw out of this. Okay. Let me give you a couple here. These are basically summary of everything I just said. Um, Give you a few things to walk away with. How should we understand and use proofs in our defense of Scripture? Shouldn't throw them out altogether, nor should we, we rely on them exclusively. Let me show you here. We should allow the scriptures to determine which proofs, what reasoning is valid. It's our authority. We should rely on the ways in which God is determined to authenticate His truth when we defend it. Number two. We should use external evidence appropriately, not as man-made criteria to subject the scriptures to, but it's corroborating evidence, which must be necessary. Of course it's there if the Bible's true in its claims. Number three, we should not depend exclusively on these proofs as though that's all an unbeliever needs. We should speak the gospel. That's where the power of God is. That's where the glory of God is radiating out of. We keep speaking the truth of the Bible. We do use the proofs. We point them to these ways the Bible authenticates itself. And then we wait for the Spirit to transform hearts. One more time, John Calvin. Um, this all comes from his institutes. If you've not read his institutes, they're fantastic. Um, he says, There are other reasons, neither few nor weak, for which the dignity and majesty of Scripture are not only affirmed in godly hearts, but brilliantly vindicated against the wiles of its disparagers. Yet of themselves, of the proofs themselves, they are not strong enough to provide a firm faith until our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty there, see the glory, the majesty in Scripture, lifts our reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. Therefore, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in opening eyes. 
But those who wish to prove to unbelievers that Scripture is the Word of God are acting foolishly. For only by faith can this be known. That leads to the final point. Proofs are most helpful for believers. They're useful in our apologetic, but they are most helpful for believers. What we're doing tonight to encourage you to trust the Word more, to rest in it more, to depend on it more because of what it really is and all the ways it's shown itself to us to be the Word of God. Next, how should, we, should our method of apologetics be, be changed by this? Um, our apologetics, our desire is that a person comes to embrace the Word of God as the authority of his life, right? Like that's the ultimate goal. We've been saying all tonight that if we begin this process wrong, we will have failed from the start. If we begin by propping up some other authority, we're subjecting the Bible to, we've failed from the get-go. Let me give you three points here. Rest in the sufficiency of Scripture to prove itself by the power of Spirit. Just share the Gospel. Just speak the truth. Number two, don't be afraid or ashamed when others reject it. Of course they will. Of course they do. So did I. And so did you. Until the Lord opened your eyes. Number three, let this drive you to know the Bible better. Be more dependent on the work of the Spirit in your life and the lives of those around you. Questions? Comments? Further implications? Thoughts? Tim. Yes, that is spot on. It's um, what we say around here. Pastor Farrell says all the time, success is what? Faithfulness. Speak the truth. Um, and uh, depend on the Spirit to work. Absolutely. That's it. That's all we can do. I cannot. I would open eyes if I could. I can't do it. Neither can you. Um, speak the truth. Trust Him. And uh, you will be faithful. That's all God requires of you. Um, it's excellent, Tim. Thank you. Questions, comments, thoughts? All right, well, I have thoroughly enjoyed our study together, and I hope you have. hope it's been um, of some profit to you. It certainly has been for me to um, clarify my thoughts and to get into the Word and recommend a couple more books here to you. Um, I don't want to wear that little uh, other little book. I think I put it under here. Uh, so, oh, my goodness. Nathan Boosnitz.
reasons we believe, 50 lines of evidence that confirm the Christian faith. Good little book there. Um, if you want systematic theology, um, there's a number out there. Some are quite technical, some are more simple. Um, what we'd recommend here would be Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He's not exactly where we are in every point. He has a couple of issues, uh, but it's faithful altogether. It's a very helpful, and it's not nerdy and brainiac. I mean, you can read it. You can understand it, okay? Um, so it's a helpful little book. He has first sections, The Doctrine of Scripture, and uh, just clarifying. I remember I read this, man, this was before seminary. Uh, Pastor Nate, when he was here discipling me, he said, let's read a systematic there. We got this. I ate it up. It was so good. Just thinking clearly about what the Bible is, who God is. Helpful. It's not not hard. Wayne Grudem If you really want to get in to thinking more deeply about the doctrine of Scripture, uh, bibliology, I would recommend this book here by John Frame called The Doctrine of the Word of God. Um, it can be a bit philosophical at times, but it's it's excellent. So he will stretch you. He will cause you to think, but it's a very, very helpful book. Chapters are short. He has a bunch of them, like five, six-page chapters, but they're on individual topics about the doctrine of Scripture. So really, really good book here. John Frame, Doctrine of the Word of God. All right. We have reached our our time. Nothing else? All right, let me pray, and I'll let you guys go. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit in our lives to overcome the blindness, the love of self, self-exaltation of my standards, how I want things to be in myself, desire for autonomy from you. You open our eyes to behold the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ shining out through the Gospel. And I ask that you would help us to embrace it, trust it, love it, depend on it, as Lord, we are living in a world that's getting darker and darker. It hates you because it hates the light. Cause us, Lord, to be people who are cemented, strong, backbones of steel, confident in Your Word and will not bend to the pressures of this culture. Help us trust it, Lord. And use the, these feeble lessons, Lord, to strengthen us with infinitely strong truth that we've looked at. And bless them. Use them. We love You. I thank You for my brothers and sisters here tonight. Bless them the week ahead as they go out. And um, it's all for Your glory. In the glory of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name.